People like you, organizations like Rave Check, I love you guys. Broadcasting live from Studio B of the Ramp Check. Uh, oh, I guess I shouldn't have done that. Was that a little too much, guys? <laughs> Probably. Yes. A little bit. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I'm Tony. I'm Aaron. And I'm little brother Ryan. All right. And we're back for another episode and you know i'm normally we just talk a bunch of stuff but i'm just going to cut right to the chase yes. we have a very special guest here and uh aaron i'm going to let you go ahead and make the introduction yes yeah, so we we have to throw out uh, uh pig's name here because uh this guest was highly recommended uh from pig who's acrojet right and um i'm just going to read a quick little bio here um because uh, our guest is is actually pretty special, so uh, his name well, is. Well, I mean, cool special. Well, not, cool special. Not not yes, short, that, not that, short that, bus that's special. That's right. Okay, just want to clarify so, that. <laughs> so, so um, Buck Wyndham was one of the very first pilots to take the mighty A ten Warthog attack jet into battle, flying numerous missions during Operation Desert Storm. He went on to fly the T-38 Talon as an instructor, training new Air Force pilots. He is currently a captain for a major U.S. airline and also continues to fly privately owned surplus military jets as a test pilot and instructor. Buck has written several articles for magazines including Warbirds, Classic Jet Journal, and Warbird Digest. A skilled photographer and videographer, he also enjoys vintage aircraft studying history 3D printing, collecting tools, driving his rail speeder, and exploring ghost towns. He is working on his next book, a novel entitled Red Air. So, wow, that's a hell of an introduction. So, welcome, Buck. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. <laughs> yeah, woohoo! We're, yes. we're, uh, when I found out that when Aaron told me that uh, you were going to jump on the podcast, I got super excited. I am really excited yeah. for this episode. Because we we have not spoken with an A ten driver, oh, cool. and and uh, also a rail speeder. Now is that is that something <laughs> from Star Wars? I had to look that it does up. Sound like it, doesn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, they actually look pretty cool. But yeah, I'll let you obviously explain it. But the pictures look pretty awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, the uh, rail um, the railroads used these little things. They're little motorized cars. They would use them to get around for maintenance and inspecting track and stuff. And they don't use them anymore. What they use is a, a pickup truck that, you know, with wheels underneath that can go on the rails. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they got rid of all the speeders. And these are little, you know, two-seat, maybe four-seat uh, little vehicles that run with a 25-horsepower engine. And uh, so they're all surplus now, and you can buy them, and you can actually get on the rails with permission and, and ride around on the rails. Uh, there's organized excursions that go out, and, and you go out for the whole day, maybe go 100 miles. And have lunch and come back, or maybe it's a three day trip or whatever. So, yeah. you know, I was going to say when, when I was in, in elementary school, I was taught about like the railroad and, yeah. and like the golden spike and you yep. see him building the railroads. I, I was going to say this is, this hobby is probably a pain in the ass, but you go on existing <laughs> rails. So yeah. that's good. Yes. We don't have to make our own. 
Nope. <laughs> I was I was thinking those uh, those rocket rail tests where they test ejection seats and everything, you know. But anyway, I was way off. Well, so. do you you don't install a, a thirty millimeter cannon on the front Ooh, of these, do you? you? Got me thinking now. Hmm. <laughs> right. I was just thinking in case you had any like cows on the track or something. <laughs> yeah, so that that could be kind of cool because if you get like a deserted section of railway, you can put this thing on. Yeah. You get your thirty millimeter cannon mounted on the rail speeder, and then like oh, every four or five hundred yards, you just put an obstacle on the tracks, and yeah. then you can just blow it away. Just yeah, it's yeah, like a really. video game. Ten thousand okay. pounds of recoil. I'm not sure that would work too well. That oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. Um, yeah, sorry. So back to the ramp check podcast. Yes, about yes. We, we, we tend to get sidetracked. Squirrel. No pun intended. But um, but anyway, so um, let's let's talk. Uh, I guess let's begin a little bit of your history. Um, how you got into the Air Force. Um. What was your, I mean, were you, were you a, a lifelong av geek from a kid? Did you know you wanted to, to fly as a kid, as a teenager? Uh, how did that begin for you, Buck? Yeah, and by totally. the way, is your call sign Buck or is that your first name? So it, it became both, but uh, Buck is my okay. given, it's not my given name, but um, my parents actually named me Buck when I was a little kid because we have a lot of uh, people in my family with the same name. I'm the fourth. Oh, and uh, oh, wow. we all have nicknames. So I became Buck and that sort of carried Great. over into my military career. So yeah, I was a total av geek. Uh, even as a kid, I think four years old is when I announced to my parents that I was going to be a pilot and they looked at me like, well, where'd that come from? So, um, <laughs> growing up, you know, I hung out at the local airports and I tried to fly and get rides and stuff with people as much as I could. Uh, got my private glider rating when I was 16. I uh, went to Embry-Riddle in, down in Daytona and oh, uh, nice. got the rest of my ratings down there and then went in the Air Force. I was in ROTC in college, so I went in. Uh, back to when I was 12 years old, I saw an A-10 for the first time. I was on the beach in South Carolina, and there was a couple of them mm. flying up the beach, and I looked at them and said, I have no idea what that crazy freaking thing <laughs> is, but I want to fly it. I didn't even know what it was until <laughs> that fall when I checked out a copy of a uh, aviation week magazine and found out what it was and then oh, from wow. that on i was just an, an a10 nerd and i just uh it's all i ever wanted to fly and uh so when i finally got to pilot training you know they, they have you fill out a form that says what do you want to fly um and i wrote a10 and of course everybody else had f16 f15 you know all that yeah. stuff so uh they kind of looked at me crazy but um <laughs> yeah i i was really fortunate to get an a10 out of pilot training and i got assigned to raf alkenbury which is a british base about 70 miles north of london and i was just living the dream over there as a as a lieutenant in england um flying flying the a10 um and, and of what course, years uh what year was this buck uh let's see i started flying the a10 in 88 late 88 and uh Flew it for just just over three years, so it was just one tour. Um, when uh, you know, when I'm when I was in England, we were flying down low in the weeds, uh, basically defending uh, defending yeah. England and and West Germany from the hordes of Russian tanks that were going to come over the border in World War Three. That <laughs> was our purpose: was to fly down low and and shoot at tanks and armored vehicles. Um, and then the Gulf War came along, and we suddenly there's nothing to hide behind in the desert. So we had to learn how to be right. Stuka dive bombers, and uh, so oh, it was a, wow. quite a different uh, 
different thing. But yeah, I've flown general aviation on the side all my life, had planes, um, participated in all kinds of other GA things. So I'm just a flying geek. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, this is Tony. I was actually in the Air Force. Um, yeah. Uh, during during that time frame, I was in from uh, 93 to um, no, I was in from sorry, I was in from 87 to uh, 93. Yeah, yeah 93, okay. 94. So we overlapped. Um, yeah, we did. And I, I actually um, went over to uh, Germany uh, once for a deployment uh, and we were a mobile tax unit. So we were the scope dopes that were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, surveilling the area. And then we, of course, had our weapons people. So I'm sure that, that our unit, whatever capacity, like the, maybe the weapons, uh, yeah. uh, the weapons techs, uh, did they would have spoken with you and coordinated some of these ground strikes. So it's kind of cool to have some of that overlap. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, great. That, that, that is. So. Before we kind of get into the, uh, the, the Gulf War, um, when you were training um, over in Europe and uh, again, you, you know, that was all about, you know, training against an invasion of Russian tanks. Right. Um, when, um, well, in Europe, in case Russia invaded Europe, right. that, that's what that training right. was about. But um, basically it was the same kind of tanks in Desert Storm. So what was the... Do you guys train specifically for the type of armor you're going up against, or is it just the the lay of the land, or just is there any different tactics that that you trained for for that circumstance? Um, yeah, I mean the the desert was uh, it just had one thing in common with with flying in Germany, and that is the type of vehicles that we were going up against. Because as you said, uh, okay. Iraq had a lot of Russian tanks. So we were yeah. familiar with their capabilities and limitations. And uh, so we didn't really have to change too much in the way of what weapons we used. It was just really how we delivered them. We had to come in from on high uh, rather than, than down low and hiding behind trees and hills and things. So, um, oh, okay, yeah, but the, the weapons were really the same and pretty primitive, really, for the time. Um, I mean, the A-10 now has so much better capability than we had. <laughs> Um, you know, we didn't even have a GPS on board. None of our bombs had GPSs. They were all just free fall bombs. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So the, the most precision thing we had was, was the Maverick <clears throat> anti-tank missile. And that was great. And it still is to this day. But we didn't have all the fancy JDAMs, the joint direct attack munition, <laughs> you know, with GPS <laughs> and all that stuff. We, we just didn't have that. So. Um, wow. So it was, I mean, it was just, just raw flying and raw attack. I yeah. Mean, not a whole lot of, uh, advanced tech, I guess now these days, cause back then it was the A10 A model, right? Now they're correct. all C models. Is that correct? Right. right. And if you look in the cockpit of one now and compare it to what we had in, in 91, just not even the same. It, it, wow. it looks like a different airplane. It's amazing what they have now. So, um, <laughs> so. Since uh, since obviously the A-10 was not glass cockpit and, and the uh, A-10 pilots have it a lot easier these days, quote unquote, um, <laughs> would you consider yourself a better pilot than the uh, current pilot? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to go right out and say that. Sure. No. <laughs> I think actually those guys, those guys today, the guys today flying it have uh have a lot more to deal with and uh, a lot more technology oh, yeah. to deal with but actually i have a lot of respect for 
for what they're doing. And, and it's the job is the same. You know, they're. Oh, yeah. 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 But no, I'm just I, I'm just trying it. to I'm just trying to provoke a little bit. That's all. That's <laughs> just my nature. Um, but, yeah, I want to continue, actually, kind of on this topic a little bit. But go ahead and finish your thought, Buck. Sorry. Oh, no, no I was just going to say these kids today have it so easy. <laughs> they do. We, we, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Go ahead, Buck. <laughs> no, I'm not going any further down that path. <laughs> well, this this the one thing that I wanted to bring up because you um now currently you are a commercial airline pilot, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. So um and and in a few of our topics, of course, the Boeing 737 Max has come up several, mm -hmm. several times. Um, and you know, everything surrounding that and and we, among the three of us, and with a couple of our guests, we've kind of had a discussion, you know, is is the focus on actual airmanship a lot different now these days with how automated these aircraft are compared to, you know, and I don't want to age you too much, but we are talking about, you know, the latter part of the 80s here. And yeah. you and I are close to the same age, it sounds like. But um um, I just kind of want to get your take on that, well, what that, you and, feel about and that, the difference in, yeah, in, in yeah. actual training, flight training, airmanship skills. And that ties into like the A-10A. Right, the exactly. That's and, why I wanted to bring and, this up. And, and along those lines too, Buck, I just wanted to add, um, it's almost like, I mean, more, it is more situ situational awareness better or would that stress a pilot out even more with mm -hmm. a job of the A-10 pilot? Oh, I think situational awareness is imperative. And I do, um, I, I am concerned about what I see and read and hear about uh, pilot training these days, not only in the military, but in the civilian world, not so much in the U.S., but uh, some of our foreign partners. Um, I'm, and this goes back to the, to the MAX, to the 737 MAX. Um, mm -hmm. When I read accident reports about things like that and, and about how foreign carriers are trained, I, I am slightly concerned about what's going on over there because it sounds like there is a a training problem. And uh, mm -hmm. I also see that problem a little bit in the U.S. military. Um, I see mm -hmm. constant attempts to shorten pilot training and do it with simulators instead of planes and, you know, get rid of formation landings, for instance, they, which they just did in the T-38 in the Air Force. Um you know, there was an accident. There was a there was a landing accident, and uh, there have been a couple over the years. But then again, it's dangerous business. And well, getting rid of formation landings, I think that's <laughs> that's a mistake. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. it's a it's a knee jerk reaction, is what it is. How about readdress training instead of eliminating yeah. it altogether? And unfortunately, I think that's just kind of how society is right now. Yeah, it's it's distressing. I don't like it. Um, yeah. I, I definitely see our capabilities going down in the long run because of that. I don't know if it's for there yet, but um, I, it, it's not good. And uh, I, I think senior leadership needs to take a long, long look at it. And, you know, they, they claim that they can produce a pilot in half the amount of time from pilot training. And uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. That's that's yeah. uh, I don't know how they're exactly training. I know there's a lot of simulator stuff and a lot of part task training and things, but that yeah. doesn't put G's on your body. It doesn't put sweat in your eyes. It doesn't put sun, you know, sun glare right. and, and, and uh, all the effects of 
of flying for hours and hours and the stresses and all that. It just doesn't simulate it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that kind of ties into, you know, a recent spat of specific military accidents where we have lost, you know, pilots, there's an F-15 over in England, um, mm -hmm. that, yep. you know, and, 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 and we don't know yet because the reports aren't out and the, the investigations are still ongoing, but you know, there, there's some F-35s that have crashed recently, you know, an mm -hmm. F-22 Raptor. I mean, so you just wonder, and it seems to be younger pilots. And I wonder if it kind of ties into that just because, um, of the lack of the, I guess more real world training yeah. Real world. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. Well, you know, time will tell, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I definitely, am, I feel very fortunate to have gone through all that training and everything back when I did back when, uh, mm -hmm. uh you know, when men were men, so to speak, but right. Um, sure. <laughs> what, well, um, Buck, what do you think the, uh, the basis for this is? Do you think it's, it's, it's budgetary? Do you think they just think that they're, that the technology now is so realistic that that they can actually accomplish this amount of training in the half in half the time is it is it a lack of airframes is it uh because these kids that are that are coming out of flight training now have been brought up on video games i mean it it sounds funny but i think that's a legitimate question i think it's a little bit of all of that i think there's definitely a generation of folks that think that you can that you can or will be able to soon uh, accurately simulate everything in the world. And I, and I see this with, um, with the airliners. Now there, uh, there's a lot of studies underway to, uh, try to get some autonomy and, and autonomous flying airplanes. And, uh, this mm -hmm. has been going on for a decade now where they've had conferences where, you know, some of the cargo air, uh, cargo carriers have been involved trying to figure out how to automate the operation and, and get pilots out of it. Um, and it's my contention that, <laughs> That AI, yeah. artificial intelligence, is in no way going to simulate what a human brain can do. Um, right. I can I can point right. to at least five instances in my airline career where, if there hadn't been a human pilot at the controls, we would have had a smoking hole in the ground. And uh, so, wow. I, I am not a big fan of automation in in airliners. I'm not a big fan of uh, simulators. I mean, I, I love simulators. Simulators are fine for what they do, but trying to right. take somebody all the way through training in a sim, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I happen to I happen to think that um, wh whatever uh, an individual does, but especially with flying, I happen to think that emotion actually can help. You know, an individual super focus. You know what I mean? And I don't think AI can in any way simulate someone's feeling about what's happening. You know what I'm saying? So right. I, I totally AI is not trying to that. play yeah. the phone light. AI is, yeah. uh, is not sitting in the airplane and trying to get itself to the destination. Um, right. That, that, that's well, the way I look at it as a pilot. I'm, I'm flying myself to San Francisco or wherever. I'm not, I'm not flying 150 people. I'm flying myself and they're going along and right. they just happen to be with me. So. Yeah. Well, and, and, I mean, when you get right down to it, all AI is, it's a difference engine. It's like, okay, sure. so I'm presented with this scenario. What am I supposed to do there? Or what, you know, and, yeah. and the other thing too is the human factor of AI is gone. I mean, 
AI does not fear death and you cannot simulate that. There is, there's that survivability instinct in humans that I think by far outweighs anything that they can simulate in a computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. AI follows the code that it has been, that was written for it. Humans write the code as we participate in the event. So it, it's far, far more flexible. The human brain is far more flexible than anything that's <laughs> yeah. pre-programmed. You just can't pre-program all the eventualities out there and all the things that, that can happen. There's just no way. Not in our right. lifetimes anyway. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, sorry, we, we, in my oh, day, we used to have to fly planes by hand. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, speaking of planes by hand, I, I, this Ryan, by the way, I've just kind of been sitting back listening. Um, I was super excited to have you on today just simply because of the A10. Um, and, and I, I have to know, like, and I don't even know if there's any way you can really describe this, but, um, the A10 has always been, one of my favorites, and I'm definitely not just pandering because you're an A10 pilot, but um, no pander, what? please. Okay, all right. Yeah, there, there's a lot of pandering going <laughs> we're talk, on. In we're talking to a anyway. pilot. He okay, all right. <laughs> my bad, my bad. Um, you know, going to air shows uh, as a kid and and seeing things, and even now, like not necessarily as a kid, and the A10 was always so up close and personal because everything they did was so close to the ground and the maneuverability. And, and so I was always so excited to see the A-10 and, and, you know, I've, I've done some pilot training and I was uh, getting my private pilot's license years ago. Um, so this may be the, the kid in me speaking, but I, I've got to know, is there any sort of feeling behind firing that cannon and just lighting up a, a tank or like, what does that feel like? I yeah, mean, I've seen some ground footage of troops when, when that A-10 comes in and those troops cheer so loud and yeah. that noise is just, I don't know. I just oh, yeah. kind of got to know what yeah. that's like to be yeah. in the cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is, it is awesome. I can tell you that the first time I ever did it was in Tucson, Arizona when I was going through training, of course. And, uh, went oh, out okay. there and we set up on a, on a target. And there's my instructor was in another airplane, of course, about a half mile behind me. He chased me in there and I rolled in on this, this big rag. We used it, it as about a 15 by 15 foot rag suspended between two telephone poles and you shoot at it. And there's a microphone underneath it that picks up the sounds of the bullets going by and it actually counts them and it knows whether you, whether you hit or wow. not. And, uh, the range controller wow. will actually read out to you how many hits you got. So I rolled in. And uh, didn't know what to expect uh, other than, you know, what I'd seen on videos and things. And uh squeezed the trigger halfway. There's a little detent there. And then mm -hmm. I increased my finger pressure and I just just waiting and waiting for the <laughs> for whatever. <laughs> I didn't know what I was what was coming. <laughs> and I just remember that all hell broke loose shortly after that. And it, it was that the plane roared. It made a roaring sound that came. <clears throat> up through my helmet, through the sides of my helmet and into my, my head, it wasn't like coming through, you know, the ear cups or anything. It was just my whole body was rumbling and the whole plane <laughs> was roaring. And, um, you, uh, you, you lose sight of the target for a brief moment as the, as the bullets are, are hitting it. And, um, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm trying to come up with a superlative <laughs> to tell you what it's yeah, like. Yeah. That's absolutely <laughs> awesome. The, the G meter, which is sitting up there on the glare shield above you, uh, pegs out at plus 10 and 
minus eight G's when you shoot the gun. Mm. That's how much vibration there is. Oh, wow. Oh, so my God. Is, is vibrating Jeez. that that hard. And then you release the trigger and you pull off the target. And a few seconds later, you start to smell the, the cordite, the gun gas coming up oh, through the floorboards and into your mask. And it's just the greatest smell ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dang, that sounds, that sounds just as cool as I hoped it sounded. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we've all, we've all seen videos and heard audio of the burnt, you know, oh, in the yeah. 10 fires, which is one of the coolest sounds ever. Are yeah. there any recordings in existence of that sound from the inside of the cockpit? Do you um, know? Yeah, I <laughs> I won't say that I did this, but there were some people <laughs> during the <laughs> sure. during Desert Storm that, that actually Sorry, put, we didn't mean to get you in trouble here. Oh, no, no. I, I think, uh, <laughs> I think the uh, statute of limitations is, is long over on this, but again. <laughs> I have Is, heard uh, that there are people that put video cameras in the cockpit uh, during the war uh, for uh, one or two sorties, and uh, that would definitely have recorded the sound. I don't know that it really does it justice, but uh, yeah, oh yeah, you know, it sounds about the same inside as it does out, except it's uh, you know, it's two feet under your feet, it's, or you know, Dang. three feet under that's your found, feet. That sounds so cool. So I got to know, did you hit the target your first time? Yeah, I did. I don't know how many. Don't remember. It didn't really matter. I was just so elated. But um, <laughs> right, yeah. the, uh, uh, you get better at it with time. And um, it's definitely a, a skill that is not like anything else uh, in guns. I flew. I, I shot a lot of guns growing up, and I, I'm sort of a gun guy. And so this was mm -hmm. the ultimate. But it's it's not like anything else. It's just really not. You're flying an airplane at the same time you're shooting a gun, which wrapping your head around that sometimes is, is different, but, uh, it's very natural. Yeah, but what's a and, better uh, feeling than that? Yeah, oh, no. Really, really nothing. <laughs> Flying an airplane and shooting a gun at the same time. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean the 30 millimeter gun in the A-10 for right. crying out loud. That's crazy. So, it is a so, um, <laughs> so Buck, I, I, I want to read an excerpt from your book real quick that, goes sure. right along these lines we're talking about and then we would love to hear about some stories flying the a10 mm -hmm. uh in the gulf war but it says um i'm awed by my destructive power with a small squeeze of the trigger under my right index finger i can rip the turd off a 30 ton battle tank and throw it tw uh, 200 feet across the desert did you well, say turd or turret turret okay. turret just, just making sure <laughs> well the well now you've ruined the intensity. Now, while the rest of the tank burns in an explosive, in an explosion of white hot burning phosphorescence. Ugh. But the cold, morbid reality of it does not exist from where I sit and watch it happen. There's no dramatic chord, no deafening explosion, no scream suddenly stifled. The soundtrack of a pilot's war is mostly silent. Wow. That's strong words. I, I love awesome. that. That is incredible. So. Obviously, yeah. it's very go, go different. Ahead, it, it, I'm sorry. It's it's just very different um, experience when you watch videos on YouTube and you see the gun and you hear the burnt noise and you and uh, you hear the bullets hitting. You know that really, other than the the sound of the gun going off uh, and this a little bit of sound from uh, other weapons that might be coming off the airplane, like Mavericks. It's really just it's quiet. It's quiet in the cockpit. Yeah. Kind of a whooshing noise and. And whatever's on the radio that you're listening to, 
you know, or talking to people. That's it. Um, you, you never hear explosions. You never, you don't even see the details of what's going on down there. A lot of the times you're shooting from several miles away. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's just a very de- detached sort of experience. And uh, because of that, you have to kind of remind yourself how real it is for the people on the other end. And uh, I try not to think too much about my, you know, my kill count. That's not something that, that pilots do. We, we generally didn't count up how many tanks we hit, how many, you know, of anything that we hit. It, it really mm-hmm. was just a kind of a flow and you, you shoot your assigned targets. Maybe you find other targets and then you go home and um, mm-hmm. you let the, you let the bean counters, you know, count the stuff up and, uh, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't count. That's, that's kind of why we don't count, uh, tanks, <laughs> you know, otherwise we'd have a lot of tank aces <laughs> from that. War. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. We just yeah. don't do that. We just don't think about it that way. So um, I'm guessing that the, the psychological part of this, um, is part of the, the fighter pilot or the pilot training curriculum period. <laughs> right. I mean, is there, is that a big part of your training? Out. No, you'd be surprised how little that that is trained or talked about in training. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost just assumed right from the beginning that you've already figured that out and you've got that under control. There's no uh, – I don't remember a single time during either my basic pilot training or my A-10 training where we talked about the psychological impact of <laughs> of launching a Maverick missile at a tank that's driving down a road. I just don't think that was, that was just never, never talked about. And, Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly few resources to, to, uh, to deal with that later. So it's just kind of up Mm -hmm. to you. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I don't really know anybody that had terrible problems with it, uh, with that part of it. So I guess, I guess the, it's self-selecting, I guess the, uh, the career of a fighter pilot or an attack pilot is sort of self-selecting. It, it only people mm-hmm. only do it when they figure they can handle it. So. Oh yeah. yeah. And you bring up a great point that, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we are talking about personalities here. And if somebody has decided that they want to go to the fighter pilot route, that they probably have a certain personality where they're a little bit, not that they're like some cold hearted killer, but they have <laughs> yeah. a personality where they're able to, to deal with that their own personal way, I, I guess. I, I don't, I didn't mean to get off on this whole. No, no, that's fine. It's, side of things, but it's kind of fascinating to know how psychologically you, you mm-hmm. can handle this. Mm-hmm. Yep. You got to know that you're going to blow shit up and break things when you're, when you're a pilot yeah. in the military. <laughs> so. That's for sure. Um, so uh, your very first, I guess, deployment into when you flew for Desert Storm. Did did you deploy when it was Operation Desert Shield or did you come in yeah. right as the war was going? Um, why don't you uh, just explain what, what that felt like flying into the region and then your first combat mission where you actually employed weapons? Yeah. A um, bunch of A-10 squadrons deployed down there uh, as the fall of 1990 went on, Operation Desert Shield. We were the second to last, I believe, squadron to arrive. There were seven squadrons of A-10s that arrived all at one base in eastern Saudi Arabia. The place was called King Fahd International Airport. It was actually an under-construction international airport that we took over. 
and used as a military base. Um, so my squadron arrived on Christmas Day of 1990, and uh, the war started um, on the 17th of January. So we only had a, two and a half weeks to get ready, maybe three weeks to get ready. Um, they threw us in, a, in an old warehouse full of tractor parts because uh, that's all they had <laughs> available for us to use as a squadron. We put it together. We built a bunch of desks and called it a squadron. And um, I got, I believe, two flights in theater during uh, early January just to sort of look around at the lay of the land, maybe mm -hmm. take a quick peek across the Iraqi border, see what it looked like over there, which was the same as it looked <laughs> south of the border, <laughs> just flat sand. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, really not a very inspiring landscape over there. Uh, kind of scary, too, because there's, like I said, there's nothing to hide behind. Um, and uh, the rest of the time we spent studying and briefing and uh, just getting ready, talking about tactics and figuring out how, uh, what the conduct of the war was going to be and our rules of engagement and uh, how the communications plan was going to go and all that stuff. And then on the 17th of, uh, January, the war kicked off at, in the early morning hours. Uh, A-10s launched, um, were very, some of the very first uh, planes to launch. Um, and I launched uh, somewhere around 10 in the morning with my flight lead. I was a wingman at the time. And we were assigned to a, a bunch of targets up in, in Kuwait. Uh, didn't go to Iraq mm, on my first wow. flight yeah. in Kuwait, which is where the Iraqi <clears throat> army was was embedded and, and had taken over. So I went up there and uh, we worked with a forward air controller flying an OV-10, believe it or oh, not. Wow. Oh, that's Marine, cool. Bronco, yeah, Marine wow. flying an OV-10, yeah. And uh, he was down pretty low, down around 6,000 feet or so. And so we thought, shoot, we'll, uh, since he's been down there for a while, we'll, uh, we'll go down there too. So we went down about 6,000 feet and, <laughs> and uh, worked with him to pick out some targets. We found some anti-aircraft artillery guns and a radar van that were sitting there. And we rolled in on those and pickled all of our bombs right across the the uh, gun emplacements, took them out, um, and then went and worked with a, a Navy SEAL who was on the beach and was uh, working on a an Iraqi uh, – uh, basically it was a bunch of guys that were spotting artillery and trying to launch artillery into Saudi Arabia across oh, the border. Wow. We took that place out with the gun and uh, and one Maverick. And then we got some AAA shot at us, anti-aircraft artillery, and uh, tried to get around that. Couldn't really get around it very easily and ran out of fuel, decided to come home. We were out of out of fuel and time to go home, so we did. So it was about two a 2.1-hour flight and um, got a little bit shot at us, but not too bad. And that was my first yeah. flight, and this went on from there. It was um, wow. we we didn't lose anybody on day one. Uh, we had one bullet hole uh, in one mm -hmm. of our jets, but uh, that was it. So we had a pretty good first day. The next ten days were pretty bad weather, and the war sort of ground to a halt. Mm -hmm. I think I got two two flights in there, and then it really picked up. And then we really started to get into flying a lot, flying three flights a day three missions a day and uh, just dropping all kinds of bombs and missiles and shooting a gun. And, and uh, so the war, the war progressed uh, pretty quickly after that. So that was my first, uh, my first day and, and how we got down to the desert. So. Wow. That, that's, that's awesome. So, <laughs> so I'm, 
I'm sure the majority of our listeners are very familiar with the A-10 and its role in the military, but can you, um, maybe for those listeners that aren't that familiar, what was actually your mission in an A-10 during, you know, Desert, Desert Storm? As far as, you know, because you've got all the other aircraft involved, but what what was your specific mission during that? So it's kind of funny. The, the A-10 was designed really for uh, close air support, uh, working closely with friendlies. Well, in Desert Storm, the first, um, you know, 40 days or so, there really weren't too many friendlies north of the border. We didn't have to worry about that. It was just the Iraqis. And so we were we were bombers and uh, and we were. Uh, we went in not only right along the border, but increasingly as time went on, we were sent deeper and deeper and deeper to hit uh, some of the more aggressive uh, troops, the Iraqi troops called the Republican Guards, who were actually really well trained as opposed to the untrained conscripts that were just south of the border. And we would, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were we dropped a lot of bombs. We shot a lot of missiles at their at their armored vehicles and their tanks and things. Um, so, yeah, we were kind of. Uh, Battlefield air interdiction bombers for for uh, forty days or so. Um, we would get an assignment where we had a specific thing we were going after. It could be this group of vehicles in the sand, or it might have been they might have assigned us uh, a uh, uh, anti aircraft artillery site or radar site or something. And once we hit that, then we had almost two hours of fuel remaining that we had to just find whatever we could find. And we, wow. were assigned a kill box. we were assigned a kill box, which is essentially 15 miles by 15 miles, this block. And it's all yours for, you know, a couple hours. And you just wow. search around, find something that looked military and blow it up. Oh, wow. So, and if, if we found anything that was sketchy that looked like, well, we don't know if it's military or not. We, we had frequencies that we could call and, and call up to the AWACS or one of the other controlling agencies and say, hey, we're looking at a train out here at this location. And they'd say, well, is it a passenger train? And we'd say, no, it's a it's a freight train and it's got some sand colored tarps on the back of it. They look like they're vehicles under there. And they go, okay, have at it. And we'd, wow. we'd roll in and do that. <laughs> that uh, another so thing fun. we did is we worked with special operations guys out in Western Iraq. Uh, there were guys snooping around during the whole war out there, blowing up things on the ground and you know, cutting uh, fiber optics cables and doing all kinds of crazy things out there. We would support them. So if they needed help, we would roll in with our gun and stray things. And we uh, we went scud hunting out there. We, we you know, the, the scud missile was used by Iraq. And uh, every night we got scuds launched at us. Oh, yeah. Uh, the big problem was they got launched at Israel. And Israel was really pissed, as you would imagine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they were threatening to get into the war. And we did not want Israel in that war. We had to. We had to maintain our, our our support from all the allied nations that were there, including a lot of Arab nations. And uh, if Israel came into it, that would have dissolved our partnership. So oh, um, sure. President yeah. Bush said, uh, take out the scuds. So we went out and tried to take out as many scuds as we could. That was another thing we did. So we wow. were multi-mission. Jeez. Jeez. D- d- during um, your missions, did you guys uh, hit the tanker often? Or was it mostly just go out, burn all your fuel, your whatever, and then come back? We did. We refueled twice, twice normally on the way out once, and then on the way back once. So, uh, and then if you needed it, if you needed to extend your your time uh, over Iraq or something, you could fly back south of the border, 
get some more gas and go back up. So yeah, we had fuel available to us at all times. There were always tankers around. Um, the, the hard thing for us was we didn't have radar of any kind. And so uh, if the weather was not great, it was sometimes a challenge to just find the tanker, you know, you just oh, literally yeah. had to visually find the tanker and rejoin on it. So um, that became a problem sometimes, but yeah, we had, had fueled, fueled on the way up, fueled on the way back. Did, um, did you ever encounter any, um, you know, enemy fire to the point that, you know, you were a little worried about it to the point where you took on some damage or anything like that, or I never or got damaged. You... Okay. Um, got a lot shot at me. Um, there were several, uh, several flights where it was, it was, um, one, especially I'll never forget it. It was the 15th of February. <laughs> um, and I, I celebrate that day to this day because I, I feel like I, every year that goes by after that particular 15th of February, is just a gift because um, hmm. I I got so much stuff shot at me and I, and the plane unfortunately was I was low and slow and out of energy when it happened. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, I let myself get into a really bad crack. And the A ten is a wonderful airplane for what it does. It does not have all the energy in the world. Does not have all the thrust in the world. And you've got to manage your energy state. In other words, your airspeed uh, and your altitude. You've constantly got to trade off one for the other. And uh, I had not done a good job of that in this case. There was so much being shot at me that I was jinking around, going left, going right, going up, down, you know, all different ways. And that depletes your airspeed pretty rapidly mm -hmm. in an A-10. And I got myself into a place where I was low and out of energy. And they were just unloading everything they had at me. <laughs> and uh, it was just a miracle that I didn't get shot down. In fact, that very day, that very morning, two guys did get shot down in that, in that vicinity. And mm -hmm. I, I just feel very lucky that I didn't. So, uh, wow. and then there were some other times when I had missiles shot at me, I had a couple Sam shot at me, one, uh, one in, uh, Kuwait and one in Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's dodge both of those. So. Jeez. Did you go in and kill the Sam site that shot at you? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that, that would make a great part of the movie, uh, but no, <laughs> ne neither of them, <laughs> you know, with, the, with, with blood in my eyes, I went in and I killed that Sam fight. <laughs> no, too scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can you can throw that into a Hollywood script one day, you know, it'd be, like it'd it. be great for, yeah. yeah. Um, is, uh, is there one, okay, so... The episode that we we recorded with Pig, he explained and told us a story of the time where they sonic boomed a base in Iraq. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So, is there a story? Now I know you're not going to sonic boom a base in an A10, but <laughs> is there yeah, is there is there a story that that kind of goes along those lines where you're just like, <laughs> we just want to dust these sons of bitches, you just know? Mess I mean, with them. Just, just ruin their day. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. uh -huh. uh, I can tell you two brief stories that we, there was nothing where we actually got vengeance on anybody in that, in that way. Um, you know, sure. like, like you, like you suggested, we, A10 flies at the speed of smell instead of the speed of sound. So, um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, time to buzz the tower. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's going to be that quick. Yeah. 
<laughs> guy would not have spilled his coffee, I don't think. <laughs> it was an A10 coming by. I'm sorry. Uh, so we, we had one uh, thing that we tried to do, which I don't know if you know this, but the the Iraqis had dug a bunch of uh, long trenches along the border, and they filled them with oil. And um, they the intent was that if if we came across the border, if if the American army came across the border, they were going to light the pits on fire to try to block us from coming across. You know, interesting thought. I don't really know how you how you set that on fire. Maybe you throw a flare in it or something. <laughs> yeah, but I guess yeah. somebody got a brilliant idea to maybe send some A-10s up there to try to preemptively light the pits on fire by shooting <laughs> the gun into it. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. armor piercing high explosive incendiary bullets sounds like a good yeah. plan but yeah. apparently some guys went up there i was not involved in this but apparently a couple guys went up there and just strafed the crap out of these pits and didn't didn't did not one flame came out of there they didn't light it on fire <laughs> at all so that was a waste um <laughs> we we did i did personally get involved in in a thing out west far out in, in western iraq in the anbar province uh, when I was out there scud hunting, we found, uh, and, and I was not the first person to find this place. I just participated. Uh, we found these uh, assemblies of buildings. I'm talking uh, a, a fenced-in compound that was four miles long by one mile wide that was full of tin buildings. We didn't know what was in them. Somebody lobbed a Maverick missile into one just to see what would happen. And what <laughs> happened was a freaking huge explosion that went on for hours and uh, oh. was sending all kinds of shrapnel into the air. And then they did it again with another building and the same thing happened. And so every mission we would try to stop by these places and lob a few <laughs> Mavericks in there and blow these places up. Cause it was so much fun. It was, it was ammo. It was clearly stacked ammo and, and rockets and whatever else they had wow. sitting around. And uh, then they found another place that was like that. It was even bigger. Um, so the first one we named Home Depot because it had everything. And, uh, so, and uh, the other one was named after the guy that found it. We called it Hicksville. Uh, his name was Hicks. And uh, so anyway, we would stop by these places and blow the stuff up. And to this day, you can still see on Google Earth, you can still see the scorched areas of the of the ground where these buildings were out there. Oh, wow. uh, it's just amazing. I don't know what they had in them. But they were so satisfying, and I think we just totally decimated Iraq's uh, ammo stash. So, <laughs> That's so yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're grateful. <laughs> yeah, really. That's awesome. Just make a, make a stop at Home Depot on the way home. Now I'm never going to look at a Home Depot the same way. Right? <laughs> think of A-10s and Mavericks and Buck. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, I have another question, Buck. Um, did you ever uh, fly any missions um, to uh, provide combat air support for uh, any downed pilots in the Gulf War? I did not. Uh, several other people did. We did have uh, some guys shot down and lost. Um, we two of them. Um, we we lost two pilots, and we had four guys become POWs, guests of the Iraqis for a mm -hmm. month or so. Yeah. And uh, during one of those, yeah, there was uh, there was a, a rescue in progress. Um, that guy's name was Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Fox. He was flying an OA-10 
uh, which is the the observation, the, the forward air control version of the A-10. Hmm. And uh, he got shot down and he had his survival radio with him, of course, as, in his parachute harness. When he got on the ground, he started talking to other A-10s that were up flying around and trying to direct them in for a rescue or at least protect him until he could be rescued. Uh, and they were, so they were in contact with him, but unfortunately, a bunch of Iraqis in a truck rolled up and he essentially narrated his own capture and it was horrific. Wow. <laughs> it was really, really awful. Um, I heard part, I heard one half of the, uh, of the conversation, but I have heard recordings of, of the whole conversation. And, uh, yeah, he's basically saying, Hey guys, there's a truck coming up and it, the guy's pointing a gun at me and he's telling me to get my hands up guys, you got to hurry. You got to hurry. And, you know, there's a tens racing in from all directions to try to get there. And, uh, you know, before they got there, he said, all right, he's coming up. He's coming up on me. He's just a hundred feet away. Okay. Oh, geez, guys, he's here. I got to put my radio down. And that was it. And the radio went dead, you know, and, and, uh, we saw him a month later, you know, when he was released from, from a Baghdad prison, uh -huh. uh, prison camp. So, um, he did, he did successfully return, but he had quite a story to tell and, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was not a good day. Uh, but yeah, I did not get involved in any of the, uh, the rescue coordination myself, but that was as close as I, uh, as I got to listen to that. Mm hmm. Wow. <laughs> Some awesome stories. Um, go ahead, Buck. I, I've got something else I'll ask you. If you had another thought, go ahead. No, I was just thinking that. You know, that, that war was only 43 days long and, and a lot of people do, uh, sort of dismiss it as something. Well, it was just a little operation that we did. Um, it, it really had all the aspects of a, of a real war. And I, I, there was a lot that went on there that, uh, I, uh, I find out even now from friends that were there flying other airplanes, you know, the, the, uh, the wild weasel guys flying the F4s have amazing stories. F16 guys, uh, I think, you know, even the F-15 guys that were way up high, just sort of loitering around for most of the time, even they got some shoot downs, some kills. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it really had a lot of, um, a lot of stuff going on in a short amount of time. But, uh, I, and I hope the stories come out more and more as time goes on, because like I said, a lot of people just sort of pass that off as, ah, that wasn't anything. That was just a little, a little thing in the desert we did for a few weeks. But, um, mm -hmm. um, uh, like I said, I hope, I hope more stories come out. Um, the ones that I've heard are amazing and, uh, we had a lot better than the folks in Vietnam. We had, we had a war that was actually run correctly. The mm -hmm. leaders really, uh, didn't, didn't restrain us a whole lot. Uh, and they didn't try to do our jobs for us by deciding what targets we were going to hit. They basically just gave us rules of engagement and they said, have at it. And yeah. so it was a very good war. It was a, it was a righteous war, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine rules of engagement are so important in a conflict. Just, I mean, just recently, the rules of engagement changed, you know, for our warfighters over like in Syria and really decimating uh, ISIS and uh, yeah. all because of a rules of engagement change. And I think that is that's so important as as a civilian seeing all that and really following this you know, for decades, it just seems like rules of engagement really is such an important thing. Yeah. And you can't have politicians running the war. And, right. and I mean, to the point where they're actually picking, picking individual targets for, for flights of airplanes that are going out. And that's what happened in Vietnam. And so we were very yeah, gratified to see that 
that that didn't happen for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what's fascinating to me is we've been able to hear different perspectives of mm-hmm. whether, you know, Desert Storm or Enduring Freedom or, or, you know, some of these other operations that have been Iraqi these full-scale wars, Iraqi Freedom, that have been going on, uh, you know, over in the sandbox, quote unquote, because um, we've mm-hmm. heard. Um, we've heard an F-16's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we got to hear from Pig. We got to hear from Fast. Fast also, um, F-16's. And, uh, mm-hmm. who's now, you know, an F-35 pilot. We got to hear Sluggo's perspective. Yeah. Uh, from the KC-135. Yeah. And now we get to hear yours. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Awesome. I think, I think we need to hear, uh, a wild weasel driver's perspective <laughs> too, though, in yeah. addition yeah. to yours. As well, but um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Just- Those guys did a great job. They they helped us out a lot, you know, taking out uh, taking out Sams and suppressing them because, <laughs> as you yeah. as you know, you you don't throw A tens into a high Sam high AAA environment and expect them yeah. to last very long. So those guys were definitely our friends, and uh, yeah, and we we appreciated the work they did every night so that we could go out in the daytime and and shoot at stuff and not be terribly worried about. Sam's, oh. but there were Sam's, but, but they took care of the big ones. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Wow. Wow. That, the Iraqis yeah, that, figured it out pretty quickly too. The Iraqis, uh, the first couple of days of the war, they had their radars running all the time. And then oh, all really? of a sudden their radars started blowing up around them. And <laughs> so they figured out pretty quickly that they had to have those things turned off and then yeah. turn them on for just a few seconds, make a sweep and then turn them off real quick or else a, a missile was going to come at him on the forehead. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that that's incredible. Amazing story. So, um Tony was going to bring up something and and we just I guess you observed would, observed, you know, 19 years ago, 9/11, 2001. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, um well, and 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 then 9/11 of 2012, I believe, yeah, was Benghazi. Uh, Benghazi. Yep. So, 9/11 was a pretty crazy day so i guess um if there's if there's nothing else that you want to add about you know your mission or your experiences in desert storm um maybe fast forward just a little bit to your post-military career mm-hmm. um you know what made you decide to fly commercial aircraft i mean duh i mean it's a dumb <laughs> question but you know um, instead of moving on to maybe something else yeah. you know that's aviation yeah. related sure um and and maybe kind of you know what you were doing personally you know career wise your personal life or whatever uh, when we get up to nine uh, eleven of two thousand one. Yeah, the military career was was great. I enjoyed it. Um, in the mid nineties, the airlines were hiring like crazy. Uh, it was a very you know at the time kind of a lucrative thing to do and very rewarding and uh there was all kinds of opportunities and so I took it and just decided to to get on with an airline and then maybe leave the option open to stay in the reserves or something which is in fact what I did mm-hmm. um so I got on with one of the major airlines and flew uh flew a bunch of different things over the years uh as a first officer made captain you know a little while ago a few years ago uh and it's been great, but I did miss sort of the camaraderie of uh, military. I got in the reserves and flew the T-38 as a reserve instructor pilot for a number of years. Mm. Um, and then once I decided to stop doing that, I uh, got a job flying civilian 
Um, jets, so still instructing and still flying military planes, but just as a civilian. So that was good. Um, 9-11 really was a big impact, obviously, on all of us and, and in the airline career. It was just enormous. Couldn't have imagined anything that was um, more impactful to our career. It really felt like wartime, even as, as a civilian. It felt felt like we were at war uh, going to going to work every day in the airliner and the mm-hmm. airline. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it to this day, you know, we still have all of the measures that were put in place back then, the armored right. doors and the procedures that we used to get through those and the just the security checks and all that, that's just stays with us. And I guess it will be forever. It's just a new fact of life. And mm-hmm. so it, um, it was, uh, I was at home on nine 11. I was in uh, my little apartment in Illinois uh, and uh, had a friend over was staying with me. He was also an airline pilot and he was on reserve. So he was hanging out at my place and uh, yeah, I woke up uh, to the news on the radio and then uh, ran out into the living room, turned on the TV and of course watched the TV for the rest of the day, right. knowing that that was going to be a profound change in my career. I didn't know how, didn't know what, but um, the first thing that happened was three days later, the uh, airline called me and said they had canceled my captain upgrade course that I was en- ah. enrolled in and I was not going to be a captain anytime soon. And uh, that started 10 years of, uh, what we call the the lost decade of wow. the airline industry where nobody upgraded and we lost tons of pay and uh you know just uh we're down in the in the dregs of existence for 10 years so um yeah it was it was awful uh i just it's amazing to me still to this day that it happened i still can't get my head around it uh and uh i didn't lose anybody personally that i knew um but i had flown both of those airplanes before i have uh had time in both of those planes so, that with those that, tail uh, numbers, that, uh, those tail numbers that are wow. that my airline lost. So, wow. um, yeah, I have a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, um, who flew, um, flight 93 the day before he flew wow. that very airplane, uh, not that airplane, but that flight number, uh-huh. that yeah. same route, uh, the day before. And, you know, that's, that really brings it close to home. Oh yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Were you uh were you still in the reserve during that time? I'm guessing you were, right? Um I was I was in the inactive reserve. I was not flying. I stopped flying uh, okay. for the reserves in two thousand. Oh, okay. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Wow. So you you mentioned the uh the ten year um what did you call it? The the it yeah, was the, the, the is the lost decade. The lost, oh, the lost decade. decade. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So do you, and, and it will just fast forward to current events with everything that's going on right now. Do you think this is going to be another 10 year decade or a lost decade? Like uh, you mentioned before, is it going to, is it not going to be, is it going to be worse? What's your perspective? It has had the potential to be, has the potential to be really bad. Um, if you look at this, the sheer numbers, Right now, um, my airline has not furloughed a single person. However, uh, thousands of people have received furlough notices that mm-hmm. starting October 1st, uh, they will be furloughed. So uh, I I believe that our leadership is working behind the scenes to try to mitigate as many of that, as many of those furloughs as possible mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to try to get us back on track. We're trying to build the airline so that we can recover quickly when the 
demand comes back. And uh, the only thing that's going to get demand back, I think, is a vaccine for this this mm-hmm. uh, COVID thing. Uh, I think a lot of this is being done for political reasons. I don't think this situation, this is my personal opinion, I don't mm-hmm. think this situation is as bad as it has been made out to be. I think it's being played for political purposes a lot. We're and, exactly uh, on I the same page, by the way. Like when, when people figure that out, I think they'll go flying again. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. hoping that happens sooner rather than later because, right. yeah, the airlines just simply can't burn cash like they are. We're, you know, we're losing millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars uh, a day uh, yeah. just burning it. And you, you can't exist forever like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it's ugly. It's really ugly. <laughs> Yeah, so um, explain um, just real quickly the different types of aircraft that you flew in, uh, that you do fly and have flown uh, in the airlines. And then also um, about the... Uh, and your favorite. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and your favorite. And and this whole thing about flying uh, surplus military jets and being a test oh, pilot yeah, instructor on that. that. That's really cool. Explain what that sure. is. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cover that first. I guess uh, when I when I got out of the military, um, I was sort of just casting around for you know something to do that was cool, and um, I read an article in a Warbird magazine. Uh, this was back in the late '90s about this company in Illinois that um, that restored uh, T-28s and, and military jets, L-39s, mm. and that they were looking for ex-military instructors to maybe start a Warbird training school. And, uh, shoot, I put together my resume and sent it to the, to the guy. And, uh, he, he hired me. I went up and talked to him here in Illinois. I, I lived in Texas at the time. I came up and talked to him and he hired me and I started doing that, uh, on the side. And, um, that company went away. I got on with, uh, a, the, the same airport basically we just walked across the, the, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> if you will. Uh, same thing I'm doing and it's called code one aviation. And we just, we do L-39s and other, uh, Soviet era jets, you know, warbirds, jet warbirds. And, and so I, I got on with them and been the chief pilot there and I do flight instruction and I do a lot of the test flying. Uh, we've got a lot of programs where we put, uh, we put U.S. Garrett engines in the L-39s, make them a really cool airplane. Mm-hmm. We do all the avionics overhauls. We put glass cockpits in these things really Gucci them out, customize them. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh nice. been doing, yeah, do all the test flying on that and, uh, you know, take them to air shows when we need to. I do upset training for corporate pilots, oh. uh, teach aerobatics, teach formation, all the stuff I used to teach in the military, except I teach it to 65 year old dudes that own their own airplanes. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, kind of fun. Perfect. Yeah, you cool. can't yell at them like you do with, uh, with a second Lieutenant, you know, a 20, three-year-old second lieutenant. It's not quite the same. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So is that how you know Pig is through that kind of community? Pig and I actually went to college together. We were in ROTC together. Oh, and then, cool. uh, of course, the Air Force, I didn't see him during the Air Force years, but then, uh, then he got on the same airline as me. And, uh, then I found out he'd been flying L-39s. And, uh, just a couple of years ago, I decided to get him on board with, uh, with Code One Aviation. So he's one of our, uh, uh, instructors. He kind of works the East Coast, and then we have our main facility in Illinois. Uh-huh. So, uh, okay. yeah, Pig's one of our four instructors. 
So <laughs> you guys awesome. went to college and ROTC together. Uh, I can together. just imagine the story. That's a whole uh, other podcast. So we're going to have to get you both on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I got stories, probably more stories about that than anything else. So. That's awesome. <laughs> He's a great dude, and I'll probably say it to his face, but I, I'm not just saying that. He's, <laughs> he's a good dude. That's good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah we love yeah. chatting with Dick. That's great. Uh, so what, what's your favorite commercial airliner to fly, and how many uh, different types have you been rated in? Uh, let's see. I flew the DC-10 as an engineer, then oh, nice. I went to the Airbus A320 as a co-pilot, and then I uh, did the 777 co-pilots. Mm. That was nice. Uh, and then after 9-11, I got bumped to the 757 and 767. I flew those as a co-pilot. Mm. And then I uh, kind of jumped to the left seat of the Airbus, and my company came out and said, hey, we're going to retire the 747 in a few years. And I went, ooh, I got to oh, do that. Yeah. So I oh, did. Yeah. I went to the 747 for a few years and then came to the, the left seat of the Airbus. So I guess, you know, I wow. love the 747. Really a great airplane. Uh, just mm -hmm. a, it really is the queen of the skies. I mean, I know they call yeah. it that, but that's, it's mm -hmm. just a fantastic airplane. Flies like a dream. Uh, but I got to say, uh, the little sports car, 757 200 was just an awesome airplane. Wow. Yeah. Ton we've heard, we, yeah. we've heard that from other pilots that flew the 757. Yeah. We had, um, dope, yeah. dope 767 yeah. driver. He, he told Chris us Holmes. a story yeah. about, uh, when he didn't have any passengers and was able to, Take oh. that thing off, and <laughs> it's like a rocket, <laughs> total rocket ship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's almost scary when it's empty when it, when you don't have any passengers or bags. It's yeah. it really you got to be careful if they if they clear you for takeoff and tell you to climb to three thousand feet. You have to be very very careful <laughs> because you will blow through three thousand feet so quickly. Um, wow, <laughs> that is the oh. only plane uh, at the airline that I could that I know of that can take off from Orange County, California, a short little runway uh, with full load of people and bags and full of fuel, take off, climb to 41,000 feet and fly to Newark, New Jersey. There's wow. just, there's no other airplane that can do that. It's just, wow. and unfortunately it's going away. Yeah, so. I know. I know that there, there's definitely a need for a 757 replacement because the A321 and then, you know, the largest 737 Max just don't cut it for what the 757 no. does. Right. And so the 787 is it's too just big. that much bigger. Yeah. So yeah. you've got that gap, you know, yeah. in between. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, Boeing comes up with, you mm -hmm. know, because they're going to need to. They got to have something in the middle there. And they, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I've, I understand they destroyed all their tooling for the 75 and, oh. uh, they can't even make it now. If they tried, they'd have to redo all the tooling and jigs and everything. So it would be wow. crazy. It would, so sad. It would be awesome to see the seven five remanufactured, especially with the, the composite technology. Yeah, that's available yeah. now. Throw a seven eight seven wing on there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Let's make it happen. Yeah, let's oh, make okay. it happen. Yeah, definitely. All right. Hashtag make the new 757 happen. There we yeah. Go, so. Yeah, really. Um, so, yeah. So we just have a couple of follow-up questions and we'll yeah. probably wrap it up here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right? We'll, yeah, we'll definitely, ahead, um, at the end of the podcast, we'll mention it again, but we want to make sure our listeners go out and get Hogs in the Sand, um, the book, obviously, by uh, Buck Wyndham. Um, but before we give that 
plug, which I kind of already gave a mini plug. Um, <laughs> what can you tell us about the uh, new book you've got coming out? I believe it's called Red Air. And when will that be available? And you just kind of want to let us know what that one might be about. Yeah, Red Air is a novel. And, uh, it, you know, I'm working on it as time allows. Uh, it's not a I don't have a date to release it, but I'm hoping maybe next year uh, my publisher will uh, will approve it and, you know, and take it. Uh, but it is a novel about a, um, a guy who flies adversary air, meaning he flies Soviet fighters, uh, under contract to the U S government to provide training for the airport and the Navy. And, uh, he gets involved in some international intrigue, uh, Mm. with that and saving the world. Oh, that's, that's that sounds nice. great. That, that sounds, sounds awesome. awesome. That's like that's like Tom Clancy ish right there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> wow, that's cool. That's great. Well, yeah. yeah so we'll definitely check that out. You know, um, if people want done. to uh, follow you on social media, so they can. I mean, will you post updates on? Oh yeah, the progress sure. of that, or you know, that's where great. you're at with that. So where where can they follow you? Just so so right now, the, the book and me have, have mm-hmm. a website, which is hogsinthesand.com, and you can find out about that book mm-hmm. uh, and me, and then you can go on Facebook and look for Hogs in the Sand. We've got a good page there. Uh, when Red Air uh, starts getting closer to its release, I'll create another uh, website and Facebook page for that and some other oh, social cool. media. Okay. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely reference that. But uh, yeah, for now, um, just Hogs in the Sand for the, for the one book. And, and uh, I'm well, I'm a big audiobook fan and I cannot find an audiobook version of Hogs in the Sand. So one thing that I was thinking about asking you to do is is um maybe you could uh, narrate that for I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, you want to read I, the book for us right now? <laughs> we'll sit down and have story time. <laughs> Can I have a sandwich first? <laughs> hey, actually a, a- uh, is talking about that. I mean, I've I've been chatting about it with him about the possibility, and and the more people that express that interest, then th- definitely that's that's more ammunition for for actually doing it. So thank you, thanks for your input, and I'll yeah, pass that along to him. Where yeah, can we definitely. where can we help drive that? Is there a way that we can uh, have people express their interest and maybe get that a little bit closer? No, you can go, go to my publisher's website and uh, and just send him a note, I guess. Uh, but nothing formal yet. Um, okay. I'm just sort of collecting anecdotes like this you know people telling me hey you got to get an audiobook so yeah um, yeah that, that's great I'll, I'll pass that along yeah well you know you could start your own con your own podcast and call it story time with captain buck <laughs> <laughs> yeah really read the book now, right yeah no that's awesome oh. i i am really excited to uh read hogs in the sand and so it's obviously available through your website, but what other platforms is it available on again for our listeners so they can actually pick it up? Yeah, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere that you buy books, um, you can go and find it. Just, just literally, just go, just type in "Hogs in the Sand" and you'll find it. It's available right. everywhere. It's a hardcover, paperback, and uh, ebook. So oh. there's all three of those available for now. All right. And uh, yeah, hope you hope you enjoy it. It's uh, if you want to. If you want to experience uh, everything and go through a six-month deployment to a war and fly it with me, that's as close as you're going to get. Because I, oh, yeah. I tried to make it so that I stuck you in the cockpit, and I also let you experience all the highs and the lows and the boring times and the uh, hmm. and the 
the just the desert heat and the anguish and the, all the things that go along with deploying to war in these days, this day right. and era. So camel spiders. Uh, oh <laughs> yeah. my God. Don't even that. Uh, that is Sorry. the ultimate creepy beast. Uh, oh. I guess you've guess you've uh, you've had some experiences with those, but uh, yeah, we had those too. Yikes. Oh yeah, wow. camel spiders. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, I would have used the A10 to strafe those. Those are uh, just god awful. Oh, <laughs> nuke them from orbit, man. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Exactly. That's- well, hey Buck, is there anything that we didn't cover or that we didn't ask you that you feel like is important that you'd want to, you know, tell us or our listeners? Uh, anything? Any subject we didn't cover? I'm very handsome. <laughs> no. Okay. Oh, oh well, there's your picture right there. Here, yeah, scroll down. There you no. see. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I think you covered. Oh yeah. He's great. Yep. Good looking uh, guy. I think you covered it all. You Bro- did a, you uh, did a great job. Uh, looks bromance friendly. Um, <laughs> just- Tony's still fixated on your photo, apparently. <laughs> no, that's awesome, Buck. We really, really appreciate you having you on the podcast with us. And um, great to be here. Uh, Whenever you want to forward the tracking number with the signed uh, copy of the book, just let me know. Yeah, uh, you got yeah, it. We'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll snatch some of those up and send send them to you so we can get them signed for sure. I'd love. Yeah, to. definitely. That'd we'll be send great. A couple. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't wait to get my hands on one. We'll uh, the happy. excerpts that we've read have oh, just yeah. been amazing. So and we'll happy be happy to send you some ramp swag as well. Oh so. yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, and. <laughs> I definitely recommend people go to the Ramp Swag store because I've already been on there and gone through, and I've got a bunch of things picked out that I'm going to get. So, uh, awesome! I really, I really like your uh, your Piper Cub mask. I'm going to pick one of those up. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I see a bikini in there. I could give to somebody too. That looks pretty cool. There you go. It's actually it. kind of a popular item. <laughs> Is it? Oh, that's good. Oh, I like yeah. your aggressor stuff too. I'm going to have to uh, get oh, some cool. of that. Yeah, uh, cool. yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to make a joke that you could buy a pig a bikini and send it to him. Oh, my God. Don't do it because he will wear it and post him in it. So let's not do that. He will. Yeah. Will. Oh, he yeah. Will. That would, would be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to I've actually been working on um, a few uh, more A10 designs, too. So I'll definitely keep you posted on that. Nice. I noticed there was a little shortage of A10 things. On I, here, know, so. I know. I know. I we just redid the website and and the uh, the Ramp Swag store, and I had a ton of A10 stuff on the previous one, and I have them all ready to rock and roll. I just got to upload them. So yeah, sorry, right. sorry for that. For yeah, see, uh, <laughs> uh, spinny side up. You're not the only one. That's right. That's right. Cool. Well, great. Um, it's been a great conversation. We yeah. appreciate. Uh, having you, uh, you yeah, guys. jumping on here with us, Buck. It was great. I, gosh, we've we've all loved the A10 for just decades. I mean, mm-hmm. how can you be an av geek, av geek and not Amen. love the A10, yeah, right? Amen. And um, exactly. I, I have to mention um, our sister. Her favorite aircraft is an A10, and she's an av geek wow. too. And uh, she's single. <laughs> no, she's not. not actually, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um but yeah, so I'm sure she'll uh, love listening to this and uh you know, getting your book. I know she'd love to read it, but Oh, yeah. Wonderful. But uh yeah. Amazing. And thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, all and of us go, go ahead. No, thank, thank you, Tony, for yours. And, and, uh, and uh, thanks for everything you guys do. I, I really appreciate you supporting, uh, aviation like you do. It's a very unique and, and awesome way to do it. And I, I really like your show. So I'll be listening a lot more. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. Um, thank you. And so before we wrap up, I want to just one more time, if, if you want to share, um, you know, your other, your personal social media, you, you don't have to. Obviously, yeah. Any kind of social but, media uh, you have, you know, and obviously, uh, the website for the book again, hogs in the sand.com, hogs in the sand.com, hogs in the sand.com. And then Facebook hogs in the sand. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. Good. Yeah, perfect. Best way to make contact. I do read every, uh, comment on there and. Uh, I also put my email address in the book. So if you get the book, you have access okay. to my email awesome. and I do try to answer every single person that writes to me. So perfect. All right, right. cool. Well, that's awesome. So before we wrap up, uh, Aaron, you want to, uh, go over your social media. Yeah. So you can quick? follow me at Aaron Rumfollow. That's my personal social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, uh, or Facebook. Uh, all of my av geekery stuff, obviously, is at Rampchat Global. Um, pretty much any type of social media, um, and uh, yeah, that pretty much covers me. So, Ryan, uh, my personal social media is uh, at Rum Follow Me, and uh, give it a look over. But as always, I say I'd much rather have you follow at Rampchat Global because that is a lot more interesting. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of the same here. I. I tend to get a little bit heated in my personal um, <laughs> my personal Instagram uh, about current events. But uh, if, if you want to look at that, you want to laugh, you can uh, follow me at uh, at T-R-U-M-F-A-L-L-O. T -R -U -M -F -A -L -L -O. Uh, don't forget the Ramp Check podcast is available uh, anywhere you can get a podcast. Um, I You can find us on iHeartRadio. Um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Apple Podcasts, Podcasts, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher. I mean, just pretty Again, much any. anywhere, right? <laughs> um, and then, uh, of course, uh, we do have our YouTube channel that uh, we do have some content on. Uh, please go to there. It's uh, ramp. It's youtube.com slash rampcheckglobal. Well, we don't um, have our. See, we're new, and so they don't give you a web address. You have to oh. just do the default. So go to our website. Rapcheckglobal.com and then click the YouTube icon and that takes you right. that links right to right. our page. And that also links to our audio podcast. Right. Rampcheckglobal.com also links to the Ramp Swag store mm -hmm. uh, that we should be expecting a sizable A10 order from soon. <laughs> um and no, then, we're gonna send them some stuff. <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah, so don't 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 yeah, uh, don't order anything A10. Don't don't click we'll buy up. in your cart yet. Let us know what's in there and uh, we can we can hook you up. But uh, no, I want to support you guys. Well, we we, <laughs> we certainly appreciate, appreciate that. And then of course our uh, aviation and aerospace news website, rampcheckreport.com, mm -hmm. uh, which is also found uh, in Ramp. Yeah, Check all the links website. on this is rampcheckglobal.com. You yep. can click through any anywhere on there. So. Absolutely. Great. All right. And uh, Buck, thank you once again for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. It was great to be with you. Yeah, thanks again, and uh, good day, everyone. <laughs>